Hi, I'm Stathis, your host. Before we jump in this episode, let me introduce DevRelX. DevRelX is a hub for developer marketing and DevRel professionals. Stay home while DevRelX brings you rich content to boost your DevRel game. Access developer population insights, news, job openings, and more. Discover how to empower developers and grow communities at devrelx.com. Today's episode will start with a quote from our guest. Profiling your audience. So say through the standard KPIs and metrics, you find that you cover, I don't know, 30% of your market. So that's your market share, right? 35%. Great. Is that a random 35%? Are you competing for the same audience with your competitors? Or does your solution attract a different profile? Hello and welcome to a new episode of Under the Hood of Developer Marketing, our slash data podcast devoted to developer marketing and relations. I'm Stathis, your host. Today, we have prepared a very special episode for you, an episode that most probably will be the most developer-focused episode we've done so far and one that will help you better understand developers. Our guest today is one of our own, the orchestrator of all answers we bring to you, Christina Voskoglu, our slash data director of research. Christina, welcome to the show. Hey, Sathi. Thank you for having me. Will you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Uh, I'm Christina. I'm a Senior Director of Research for Slash Data. As you said, I'm responsible for uh, all we do around research. So both the technical side or the methodology side, if you prefer, of how we do things, um, but also on the commercial side, because in, academically speaking, given the complexity and the breadth of our research, we could be writing a few PhDs every time, but the point is to find the key messages and the so what behind all this data and provide some non-trivial and actionable insights. So that's the packaging into some research and therefore, yeah, that's what I do. I lead the analyst and the product teams uh, in that direction. And you're also our own go-to person for everything related to research or uh, when we seek answers. So uh, it's also great to have you on the podcast. I've been <laughs> really looking forward to, to us doing this episode. Walk us through your uh, journey. How did you end up in uh, developer ecosystem research and your current role at Slash Data? Hmm. Okay. Um, well, I guess I always, always had a soft spot for um, developers or um, or the IT people, as I used to call them um, at the onset of my career. But I didn't start off from the developer ecosystem. I started off from the financial sector, actually. But my role brought me somewhere in the crossroads of a few you know, traditional departments, let's say. So I was there to build bridges between the technical aspects, the data uh, that we collected and the business decision made on those data. So I was a bit of a geek, I would say, always. Actually, yeah, I ran into an old colleague the other day and she asked me, um, do people actually understand what you're saying these days? And uh, yeah, I, I sincerely hope so because we're currently building a, a business around that. But anyway, I wasn't intending to drop out necessarily from that. Um, I just uh, realized at some point in my life that corporate world was not for me. I had three young children at home and uh, I needed something different. 
I uh, happened to talk to Andres at some point. Uh, he needed some help with something. He said, hey, do you know anyone who could help with uh, this? I said, yeah, well, why not? I can help you if you want. And one thing led to the other, and I found myself head first in developer data. I had all these ideas um, applying things that I was doing in my past life, as I call it, uh, CLV kind of things, so segmentation and so on in the developer world. And yeah, I thoroughly enjoy it. As I said, I always love developers um, and I love observing them. So here we are. It's been a great journey and I think that's good that one thing led to another and uh, everything turned out great since this year we're celebrating 10 years of research. So mm -hmm. yeah, this is something to, to be excited about. Uh, was there a driving force or a role model that led you to where you are today? Um, not really. I don't believe in role models, to be honest. Um, it's a rather simplistic idea in my head. It's, I, I try to learn both from brilliant and from non-brilliant people, or to not, not use labels like that, from brilliant actions. Um, rather than people and learn from mistakes, my mistakes, other people's mistakes, they are far more informative and, and useful than success in my mind. So I don't have a single role model as you say, unless of course um, you want to count <laughs> Captain Janeway from Star Trek Voyager. Yeah, I'm a Trekkie. Um, because why? Because she managed to bring together two very different and opposing teams that were enemies at the beginning. And she led them with a clear vision and mission to get them back home. So I like that. Yeah, I like that too. And it's been a while since we had the sci-fi reference. So it's good. it's good to have one, especially from Star Trek. I'm also, uh, you know, 100% with you about this because, you know, you, you end up idolizing someone and you miss the whole point of, as you said, brilliant ideas, not people. Was there a habit that you picked up in your childhood that you still carry to work life today? Yeah, I wouldn't call it a habit that I picked up. I guess it was there all the time. It's kind of sort of how my brain works, I would say. I know it's that sort of weird thing. but um, So I've always been um, playing around with music, composing music. Um, and, um, for example, I like to, as a child, just think of a known song or melody just played on my keyboard. I didn't have a proper, let's say, or a formal education. I was self-taught on this. Um, and then move it around uh, on my keyboard, uh, all white, as I would say to myself or something. So I still do that. In some cases, I prefer to think through notes, through music. Uh, and yes, I am insane, I know, but that's uh, how I like to do things. So. Yeah, this is a gift, but I think it's also a curse when someone sings or plays the wrong pitch <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's been great uh you know doing this whole introduction for our listeners and now uh before we uh, go to the topic of today's episode it's my favorite section that we recently introduced it's called let's talk data so will you please pick a graph from devrelex.com trends and tell us why and what stands out to you in this graph, maybe something that you didn't expect. And uh, I was I'm really looking forward to hearing this from you because you, you know, are the person, as we said, orchestrating this whole research. So I, I really want your perspective on, you know, something that stands out. 
Yeah, thank you. Um, I always love talking Tatar, as you know. So, yeah, I will be a bit biased and go in my natural space of ML. Uh, so I'll pick the graph where we show uh, where ML developers deploy their code. So in our survey, we initially, as you know, ask developers uh, in which development areas they are involved. In this way, we get them to self-identify as being ML developers, AR, VR, web, mobile, and so on. Uh, and then we ask them to tell us where they actually deploy their, their code. So I'm just focusing on ML developers here, uh, where they deploy their code. So if you look at that graph there, it says that the majority, it, it, it's slightly dropping, I'll get to that in a minute, but the majority still, something like 56%, are still deploying, on, uh, deploying locally, right? Desktop and laptops. And then we have all the clouds that are, of course, going up but slowly. So why do I focus on this? Simply because uh, it's perhaps contrary to popular belief and it verifies uh, what I had in mind. So when you know, uh, machine learning and data science became a thing that everybody uh, recognized, because until then the few of us who were in this field, there were sort of the weirdos who, um, there was no word to describe us. Fortunately, now we do have a word. But uh, when it did come along and big data hype and everything, everyone thought that people were working really, um, doing something really fancy, real time, uh, on the cloud and so on. But the truth is that even a few years later uh, than when this hype began, people are still in their majority in this field uh, deploying uh, locally. Um, so that's an interesting point. Uh, for me. Uh, another thing, as I said, is that cloud, however, of course, is going up and the cloud revolution is one of the key things that has happened over the past uh, years, but um, desktop is still, uh, is still there. Especially on cloud, especially public cloud is gaining traction, especially if you count uh, multi-cloud. This is a good example of how cloud is transforming the ecosystem, right? So um, ML uh, workloads, running on the cloud, uh, having um, uh, much more uh, processing power and so on. So that's my data point take of the day. Yeah, it was very insightful. And uh, like how you said, you know, weirdos and no one knew how, what you were doing, you know, in a quote back then, but ever since big data came along and, you know, people start realizing the potential, everyone was all about, you know, machine learning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and now, I mean, it has become quite inexpensive, increasingly easy and inexpensive uh, to run uh, several instances, ML models uh, on cloud infrastructure, and uh, there, there so much free stuff offered as well. We have all Jupyter notebooks, so environments, for example, uh, no setup. Um, therefore, um, there's a, a lot of things going on on the cloud and will go up, but still, <laughs> despite all that, uh, the majority is still low, so that's interesting to me. And we'll have to see in our next 10 years of research, you know, how things yeah, but, yeah, end up evolving. It, it will have reverse, definitely, but yeah. uh, we're not there yet, that's what I'm saying. Uh, before we jump into our next question, I want to say that these data uh, that we're discussing here come from our developer economic survey, which is from serving 30,000 more developers annually and more than 
165 countries. And the latest wave is now live. So anyone who listens and is a developer, whether you're developing just as a hobby, you're a student or a professional, you can take the survey at developereconomics.net and you could win cool prizes and your results will lead to stimulating conversations like the one you're listening to and maybe drive the future. Christina, how do we uh, transform the data we collect into insights? Hmm. Well, okay, as you said, we, um, we get in total about 30K uh, responses annually, uh, split between two surveys. Um, so each survey gets something around 17 to 18K uh, cleans responses at the end of the day. I'll explain what that means. And then it's a matter of cleansing them and deciding who stays and who goes, which response a fraudulent one, and then correcting for any sampling biases that there may, there may exist. And uh, that's uh, these two areas, I'd like to think we're very sophisticated work in the sense that cleansing is done in several levels. For example, we we even look at uh, speeders at the question level because our survey is quite complex as a logic. It branches and branches and branches out. So we think that we have some like 180 questions. Of course, nobody ever, ever gets to see that many. Um, so it has a very complex logic of what question will you see depending uh, on your answers. Um, therefore, there's no such thing as survey, acceptable survey completion time. And, and we get actually that quite a lot as a question. So, okay, so how long does it take to complete your survey? Well, that's a um, very relative term. So we calculate acceptable completion even at the question level. So we look at the distribution of time taken to answer each and every question. And then looking at that anyway, let me not get too technical. Uh, we, we throw out speeders. We look at um, whether or not you keep on clicking random things uh, and so on. So in that, in that sense, we, make, we look at the comments that people leave. And therefore, um, you know, in many different ways, we uh, identify fraudulent responses. And then, of course, we have more than 70 partners worldwide. By partners, it's not necessarily any um, you know, vendor or anything. We go from local meetups to, I don't know, uh, forums and uh, even um, large communities. So any size and any type of community uh, we can find. So we do not rely on a single community. even on a handful of communities or even on a handful of countries. As you said, we are reaching out to developers from more than 160 countries every single time. And we have local um, partners uh, in all of those. So um, we are doing uh, a lot of work to get a representative sample anyway of the developer communities. But it then, by then, we actually check if that stands or not. And we may have to correct for any sample biases because anyone who tells you that sample bias does not exist simply do not believe them. There's always some sample bias in, in involved. Our statisticians make the best we can uh, to remove as much of that as possible. And so it is an exercise of minimizing sample bias. Uh, and there's always such an exercise. So we track where each response came from. And if we see that uh, a channel suddenly becomes over-influential in the data. So we get more hobbies, for example, than it's, it's natural to, to expect. 
then we weigh them down, uh, those answers, those they're weighed down. Uh, it's not as simple as that. It's a very, very complex technique. And at the end of the day, an algorithm that tries to come up with a single um, weight, let's say, uh, based on all possible ways in which a, a response may be biased, uh, that corrects for that. So that's how, at the end of the day, uh, and we're tracking by tracking all the historical trends, we know that we're reaching something that is really close to the objective truth. And as you said, uh, we, we are doing this research for 10 years now, and even the what we call raw data, so that without any sort of interference, uh, there is some pattern to what we see. Um, and therefore, we know that we are reaching a representative sample. That's the way we know, because there is a continuity to the trends we see. It's not just random jumps uh, from here to there. Yes, thank you for walking us through this process. I know it's uh, I personally know it's a very complex process, but end of the day, it's uh, a ton lot of things taken into account to ensure that from every report we get to the last single graph you someone might see at derelicts.com/trends is accurate. So, which is the whole point of this? Mm-hmm. Yep. So we already use the term developer ecosystem. When we talk about developer ecosystems, who are we talking about? Who is included in a developer ecosystem? Hmm. You know, the simplest questions are, in my experience, the more uh, the most uh, difficult ones to answer. So, who is a developer? Well, the profile has changed over the years. Uh, we have moved from that profile of the experienced pro um, to the um, that's something you hear quite often lately. Everyone can be a developer, right? So we had a huge boom in um, APIs and automations of all sorts, visual tools and name it, you name it. And therefore, all of those tools and technologies facilitated a shift from professionals to just everybody, um, even the five-year-old across the street, being able to do something that a few years ago would be just the realm of uh, really experienced professionals. And it's kind of a, a cycle. It's, a, it's um, uh, accelerating because now you see younger devs or younger people in general jumping in the field and they're going straight for, for the meat, let's say, so straight for the emerging technologies, right? So we, we're also seeing people that don't have the traditional background in the very well-established technologies that um, professionals typically use and um, a few years back and was the only thing they used um, on-premise back-end development and uh, even mobile development is not mainstream, of course. So um, it, it's very interesting to see uh, all the youngsters jumping in. Following that, that's what I'm saying, it's kind of a chain reaction here. Of course, all the um, uh, education materials evolved. Uh, so there's a million things you can find online, you know, all kinds of courses and uh, trainings and hands-on labs and webinars and you name it. So it's very, very easy to get uh, quickly versed um, in more than just the basics, really. And therefore, um, the, the barriers to entry. So on one hand, all the APIs and the automations, um, reducing the need for, for um heavy-duty uh, coding, even low, uh, low coding. Uh, it's just high-level, not just high-level, it's you know, a lot of you can do with just high-level. And, and that has lowered the barriers to entry in the whole ecosystem. Um, I, I guess a good example, if you want me to be a bit, bit more specific here, uh, would be the augmented and uh, virtual reality world or mixed reality world, if you prefer. 
try it yourself. If you, if you try and, and figure out who is in the market other than the big guys, there's so many um, tools there that say that, look, you don't have to be uh, a developer to, to use this and, and build your own app. Um, so we see so many people, even artists and um, you know, designers and all sorts of people um, in marketing, retail, uh, using AR uh, or VR technologies to, to build applications, to promote their non-tech products, you know, their business in general. So who is into the technology ecosystem is a very good question. It's not necessarily a developer anymore, not in the strict sense that we tend to attach to the term. Yeah, as you said, barriers have been lifted and, uh, you know, it's a lot easier nowadays to access the tools that could yeah. uh, lead to categorizing one as a developer. But still, mm-hmm. yeah, th- this is something that when I you know, came across, when I joined, uh, you know, for, especially for AR, VR, where you could see designers and oh, yeah. all these kind of different people mm-hmm. that are not traditionally developers. Yeah, exactly. yeah, this is... yeah it's not ju- and, and it's not just about the tooling. It's mostly about the technology itself, but it's also everything around it. So the resources that are available nowadays, uh, the way you can, you have access to information, access to experts, you know, uh, all the forums, uh, all the open source community, that's another big thing um, in the last, what, decade or so. So it's not about the technology only, it is the technology at the core of it, obviously, but it's also everything around it that has uh, evolved and has made things easier because, Naturally, when you have a technology, you're trying to attract a community around it, and the easier you make it, the more people you attract, right? So this has made things really easy. Um, actually, if there's a side effect, it's making things confusing. There are so many questions out there. Okay, where should I start? I want to be a data scientist. I want to be a, but where do I start? But yeah, I mean, the sky's the limit. There's, there's so many possibilities out there to, um, and, and ways to enter the ecosystem. So just about anyone can, can get in. Yeah, I've been to that, uh, where do I start thing, when I you know, started trying to understand how developers you know, work their tools, and there's uh, endless points to start. We've, here at Last Data, we've been doing developer research for 10 years, as we said. Uh, this year, we're celebrating 10 years. So you'd think that, uh, I think you already touched it in the previous question, but uh, still, what do you think has been the biggest evolution of developer ecosystems these past years? Has it been the, the access to technology? No, if I were to say one thing, it would be cloud computing. That's the key driver in my mind behind um, everything that has happened. Uh, in the past decade. Um, so we have many things that happened there. First of all, with the, with the big guys, so, so the main platform providers um, sort of pushed companies to the cloud. Um, we moved to a SaaS model or all the AaaS models, PaaS, DBaaS, CaaS, and so on. So that changed a lot of things. So to be more, more specific, processing power, for example, right? So cloud offers access to just ample processing power. Uh, which means that uh, makes it easier to to build demanding applications. That includes ML that I touched upon earlier, but also other things. That was not so easy or cheap before. 
right? On-premise, you had to maintain on-premise infrastructure, um, all the security concerns, and blah, 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 maintenance. Now somebody else takes care of that. Therefore, many uh, even smaller companies, we, we saw the startup boom there, could um, use a cloud infrastructure to, to start business in no time. And then we had things like containers that came along. Um, so cloud-native uh, microservices, all of that, container orchestration tools, uh, serverless, uh, lets you run your code without provisioning or even managing servers. That was a big, big change. And then, as I said, we have more of a service thing, which uh, removes all the, all the hassle, all the hurdles of developers uh, on the back end. Um, and therefore, they, they can focus on building their products instead. Right? We have a higher level of abstraction. Therefore, and also the security concerns, uh, we see I was keeping, a, as I said, I've come from financial uh, sector, which of course is very, very sensitive to anything relating to security of data, right? So I was keeping an eye and see what, how are people going to um, react, how are uh, large orgs going to react in the um, very security sensitive um, industries. And we do track industry and how development and cloud adoption uh, is progressing in each of those. And it is progressing. It is indeed lower still in those sectors, but it's uh, gaining traction, right? So enterprises are moving to the cloud. This is a big thing. So cloud computing is the main thing that happened. Then add open source to that. It pre-existed, but uh, suddenly you have enterprises more willing to adopt it in the sense that also all the main platforms, all the main uh, software are also supporting OSS, right? Both by incorporating it in their own offering, but also contributing directly to OSS, right? And supporting OSS communities. And, and currently open source is widely used and cloud services are built on top of open source as it stands, uh, Kubernetes based services, right? And we know that currently uh, just about every developer uses open source. Uh, not everybody contributes, um, that's something like 60% contribute. And again, uh, this is something, and that makes, that's another um, key, another um, proof one that uh, says that uh, open source is moving things forward. It's the young people, it's the young persons in the ecosystem who are contributing more. So it's not going to go away, it's going to grow. So that's another thing. So cloud combined with open source, then ML uh, and deep learning also in particular came a, a thing, as I said, finally. Uh, it pre-existed for a long time. It was sort of a prohibited kind of thing. Um, but now, given all the, the power that we have using cloud, uh, finally it could fly. Um, so it was propelled forward by um, cloud and by all the open source communities around it. And then, uh, that also then led to many automations, uh, the, the, the creation of many APIs that plug them in, uh, into your project and it just, boom, it, it works. Uh, you have an ML API in your, in your app and it's suddenly a lot smarter. And last but not least, the other thing I would point out is DevOps, which, however, is not growing very, very fast. So it's one of the emerging technologies we have. Well, it's not really a technology, it's a culture mostly. But DevOps is one of the three things we have been tracking under the umbrella of emerging. And it's still not part of the typical developer's uh, protocol, but it is making a lot of difference where it has been um, adopted. That's mostly in um, enterprise uh, setups and among, obviously, experienced professionals. 
so yeah, that's uh, that's in uh, in order of importance. What has um, led to the evolution in the field? These have all been uh, big changes, you know. And since we're looking at that through this ten-year uh, prism, we can also see, you know, how new technologies introduced have turned things around and also changed the way things were done, or which is the best case, made everything much faster. Mm-hmm. At the same time, are there technologies that are hyped, technologies that are currently enjoying popularity, but uh, which won't last for very long? Well, it's a natural thing. It won't be the first time it happens if it does. For example, we've seen it, as you, as you said, we have been tracking the space for 10 years. Um, we're there when the IoT hype came along, for example, the wearables, smartwatches, and all those came along. So we've seen it, and what we see, so instead of just telling you about Technologies, I will, but just uh, as a side note, what we see over and over again in all the developer systems that we track is, so there's a very typical process or growth evolution, if you prefer. The first one to try a new thing, given the technology is there and it's accessible, I mean, is the, uh, the non-professionals. So the uh, hobbyists and the explorers, as we call them. So people that are not doing things for hobbies, but they're trying to learn in order to uh, monetize future opportunities. Okay, so the first to jump in in any ecosystem are those, those guys. The pros are just standing by and watching and they're waiting to see if there's going to be so how the first group will do, let's uh, say, the, the scouts <laughs> of the whole situation, what, what will happen if they, will, they need to see the money, they, they need to see the business case, if there's a market that can be built on top of whatever new technology has come out. So at that point, if a market is not clearly, a market opportunity is not clearly visible, then you may see, you may observe a deflation of the hype. That's what happened with IoT with a wearable side of IoT, because IoT is a very, very broad term. It, it includes many things like industrial IoT and uh, among other things, and all the um, uh, beacons and uh, smart cities and blah, blah, blah. So at least for the smartwatches bit uh, and a few other markets that didn't fly in the end, uh, that was an issue. The, the professionals or those who were serious about making a, a business out of the thing um, didn't, didn't see a market, couldn't, couldn't see a business model. Uh, a viable one. So um, it has happened, and we do track emerging technologies such as, but not limited to, uh, computer vision, self-driving cars, um, blockchain, uh, robotics. Uh, it's a long list. Um, and it's in my mind, it's not so much about uh, which of these will die, so as to still which still have trouble becoming mainstream as they stand due to perhaps high specialization, high barriers to entry, specialization, I mean, both in terms of skills needed and tooling. And of course, as I said, it's still limited business scope. So people still exploring the product market fit. For example, quantum computing and self-driving cars are are examples. So we see high interest for these areas, but still very low adoption, right? Um, while on the other end of the spectrum, uh, we have things like fog hedge computing and 5G. They're, they still uh, sit at the, near the bottom of the pack of the emerging technologies um, in terms of engagement. By engagement, I mean either actively working with the technology or actively learning about it or just interested. 
So the, the sum of all these three groups, those who are engaged with it. So these, these FOG-EDGE sees a higher rates of adoption than the more um, heightened futuristic technologies, right, of self-driving cars and so on. And there are infrastructural technologies, right? FOG-EDGE is an infrastructural technology. Uh, it may not capture your imagination that much, but uh, they will become relevant much sooner. Now, if I were to pick one that is actually deflating is uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, that's a huge wave of publicity uh, that came with the Bitcoin late 2018, I think, it led to the uh, emergence and current, it still, was still there, of around 3K cryptocurrencies, uh, circa that amount, that number. But the fact that, you know, uh, we have a quite low, um, actually just 9%, I think, of what variables are currently using cryptocurrencies, it says that, you know what, it's actually slowly um, deflating, if not dying. I don't think it would die, but uh, it's not going to be as popular as people thought. Uh, mind you that other blockchain applications are, in fact, more popular as it stands right now. So currently, 45% of developers are engaged with blockchain, uh, blockchain outside Bitcoin. Uh, we have around 40 who are into, engaged in some way with cryptocurrencies, not using it, not building about it, but just interested in it. So, yeah, that's what, uh, what we see happening. And uh, I really like how you differentiate, you know, the, um, uh, as you said, the hobbyists versus the professional when it comes to, to a new technology. And uh, this is exactly what you, you said, your, uh, your last point, where a couple of years ago, everyone was all about cryptocurrency. Everything was all about how, how I do that, how do I get engaged with it, and you see people coming in to do just that. But then you see the professionals coming in and seeing the real value of blockchain. Mm-hmm. and how it can be used for other applications and business applications. So you can see there the, the shift. It's- yeah, it's even in health. In my mind, uh, all the, the medical application of blockchain and ML and all that, it's, it's never exactly because it's not so exciting. It may be not be making headlights um, so much, but there's a revolution happening there um, in the background. I think it, it has come forward now. It's not so much in the market anymore. But yeah, it's, there's, there's definitely more to blockchain than, than just cryptocurrencies. Yeah, so from that sense, hypes are good because they draw a lot of attention and then maybe some professionals come in and um, oh, or yeah. you know, they, they evolve into something that can be really, really useful or change things around. Yeah, you do need a hype to get, as I said, the, the first people to jump into a new uh, technology um, and try it out are the ones who will very excitedly get in to just play around with it. So the explorers and the hobbies, and, and therefore you, you do need a lot of buzz around something to attract these people, right? So the professionals who are never the first ones to you know, put all their eggs in that basket of this new shiny technology that is not proven yet. So you do need a hype. It's, it's part it's of the natural process, um, of the natural life cycle of a technology. It has to be there, yeah. At Slash Data, we work with several vendors and organizations who come to us for answers to specific questions. So what is the number one question everyone wants an answer to? Oh, I, I really wish they all had this one question. No, they don't. Okay, so they, uh, depending on their niche or you know, what you're trying to do, of course, we get all sorts of questions. 
if I were, because we are sort of collecting our own data about our data, if that makes sense. So who is asking how many people are asking for what? Uh, I would say developer population sizing is uh, obviously something that uh, is of particular interest as people are trying to understand what's their um, target addressable market, what's their size, where are they? Um, and then the next uh, bit that comes in has always been my favorite and part is uh, segmentation. So, okay, I've, and, and I've been trying to, I've been offering um, segmentation things right from the start. We've built this model, as you know, that's around how to segment developers, how they're not all the same. So uh, it's about profiling your audience. So say through the standard KPIs and metrics, you find that you cover, I don't know, 30% of your market. So that's your market share, right? 35%. Great. Is that a random 35%? Are you competing for the same audience with your competitors? Or does your solution attract a different profile? Uh, is it relevant to say, I don't know, uh, more professional or enterprise people as compared to hobbies or learners and so on? So that's also something that people are trying to understand. So what's the size of their target addressable market? What are the, the, the distinct personas in that segment so that they can do marketing? Um, so effective developer marketing is something that's really hot, as you know, this is a podcast around this, this <laughs> yeah, exactly. these topics. Yeah, and how to reach them. So this is the, the, the circle, let's say. So it's not so much. Of course, people also want the, the trackers to understand the relative uh, share of competing technologies out there. But, you know, as this ecosystem grows and grows, of course, people realize that they need to reach the developers. So marketing, developer marketing is really, really essential. And it's not as straightforward as the same. So understanding what your market is and how it segments to different profiles and what each of those profiles um, needs to hear. So what's the right messaging is really important. So um, most questions that we get uh, evolve around those. And then we have, of, of course, people asking about emerging technology. So we have been asked to, over the years to, uh, assess the evolution and predict the future uh, evolution of ecosystems and therefore trends, what we expect to see to be the next big thing. And therefore, how do we recommend that the, the top tech guys position themselves so that they can ride the wave of, um, of the trend? So, yeah, that's mostly about the most usual typical questions we get. Yeah, and it makes perfect sense because marketing-wise, it's the first thing uh, the first question everyone asks, you know, who, who is your audience? How big is your audience? Yeah. What do they want? What do they like? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, segmentation comes in really handy there. Mm -hmm. And this is all aligned with our own mission as a company to help the world understand, understand. developers yeah, and vice versa. Uh, yeah. We also have webinars on that. So if you want to learn more about uh, segmentation, you can just go to our new website, weknowdevelopers.co, and access all free webinars there. Or uh, you can just ask us, Christina, if some of our listeners want to hear more from you, how can they reach you? Well, they can reach me on Twitter, for sure. Uh, Christina Voskoke, if you try that, it should work. There's only one of me, I think. And otherwise, through slash data. So just uh, contact the slash data team and uh, it will reach me. Uh, Christina, it's been great having you. Uh, it was a very, very insightful episode and I hope our listeners would agree. Thank you, Steph. It was really great uh, being here.
And uh, to our listeners, thank you for listening to Under the Hood of Developer Marketing, the podcast devoted to developer marketing and relations. Listen to all episodes, find free resources, and the latest news at devlex.com. You can also subscribe to our bite-sized bi-weekly digest or follow us on Twitter at slash data HQ. Thank you, Christina. Thank you, Sophie.